This is And the Oscar Doesn't Go To. I'm Sam Meltzer, and on this podcast, a guest and myself will be discussing the films that received Best Picture nominations, yet not only failed to win that award, but didn't win any trophies on Oscar night. Today, I'm going to be joined by Zita Short. She is a writer for In Session Film, hosts the 300 Passions podcast, and is a huge fan of Geraldine Page. So welcome. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction. I love the fact that you referenced my Geraldine fandom. <laughs> yeah, you said she was your favorite actress, so of course. <laughs> and today we will be discussing The Emigrants, which is a Swedish film that was released in Sweden in 1971 and got a American release in 1972. The film got one nomination at the 1972 ceremony and four in the 1973 ceremony. We'll get into that whole confusion later. But what about The Emigrants intrigued you? Why, out of all the movies on the list, did you choose this one? Well, I remember back when I was going through all of the Best Picture nominees and I eventually managed to see all of the ones that are publicly available you have a couple that are only available in the George Eastman house or you have to travel to New Hampshire in order to see them so I don't have the money to do something like that but all of the ones that are easily accessible I did manage to see and I remember with the immigrants I was slightly concerned about it I thought oh it's this three-hour foreign film will it be impossible to sit through is it going to be too artsy and impenetrable for me to get into it and I just remember it being spellbinding I, I couldn't tear my gaze away from the screen I thought it was absolutely fantastic it's old-fashioned epic filmmaking with a bit of a new twist put onto it and I appreciated the fact that it was oddly accessible despite the fact that you could compare its visual aesthetics to those of a lot of art house films from this period of time. And I think it's kind of a shame that this is seen as one of those, I guess, hoity-toity art movies that people struggle to get into, because I don't think it is that. I think it's a really easy watch in a way without losing the ability to challenge its audience or to subvert their expectations. Yeah, the first time I watched this movie, which was like almost a year ago, I realized, I, at first I was like, wow, like how did a three-hour Swedish movie that got a New York limited release get nominated for such major categories at the Oscars? Why did they embrace it? And then I watched it and I realized this isn't difficult to follow. It's very simple. It has a lot of interesting character arcs, but I don't think it's confusing or complex despite what the runtime may suggest. So I have to say it did surprise me because I'm, whenever I watch foreign films, I, I tend to try and focus more because you know having to read the whole time, it sort of compels me and makes me think, oh yeah, and like I have to really pay attention to this. So you know, with this film, I, I just expected it to be more complex than it was, but I agree with you because it's just much more, I don't, I don't wanna say mainstream, but it's much more easy to watch than than what you'd expect a three-hour Swedish film to be. So 
yeah, I, I do really like that the Academy chose to nominate it because otherwise I would probably not know what it was. And even comparing it to the Liev Ullmann film that received a Best Picture nomination the following year, I think Cries and Whispers definitely fits the mould of the inaccessible art house film that's full of symbolism and imagery that can be difficult to understand if you don't read a critical analysis of Ingmar Bergman's work and the themes in his work before going into the film. And I think this one is probably far easier to take in, but I feel like when we're saying that some people could interpret that as a criticism, and I don't mean it that way. I think it's fantastic that the movie is so open to the audience's interpretation. And I'm a fan of old fashioned sort of Hollywood style filmmaking. And I like the fact that this one has the simplified direct storytelling of A Gone with the Wind, where no, you're not getting a lot of surrealism. You're not getting a non you're not getting a non-linear narrative but you're also getting some artsy touches where the cinematography is almost Melikian, even, even though this came out two years before Badlands and even the performances are very naturalistic. I would say you would probably have, if it were an American movie star appearing in a film like this, I think the performances might be more over the top and we'll get into it, but the conflicts between some of the characters might have been more extreme rather than being gentle and almost imperceptible when there is tension between two different people. Yeah, it is a very authentic portrayal of just this whole process that these people have to go through. And although like Liv Ullman, she has some, again, we'll get into this later, but you know, she has some loud moments on the boat and it's not like she's just completely quiet the whole time, but she is supernatural, whereas a lot of American actors wouldn't do that. I feel like they'd just be angry and really showcasing their expressive faces all the time. And, and don't get me wrong, like I usually don't think there's much wrong with that, but it is nice to watch a movie where the performances are just so nuanced and really laid back in such a subtle and like believable way. Yes, I'm more thinking of a biblical epic where all of the performances are very big and grand and theatrical and campy. And in some cases that really works. I'm a big fan of Anne Baxter's performance as a very horny nefertari in The Ten Commandments. But then I also think you get really hammy, over-egged performances that are just unpleasant to watch. And so I think if you had transplanted that style of acting into a film that's meant to be about farmers who are struggling with their lifestyle, who want to pursue their dreams, who are fairly simple-minded people rather than being glamorous in the way that a lot of characters from Hollywood films are. I don't think it really would have worked. It would have felt inauthentic, as you said. Yeah, a lot of stories that, a lot of American films, they have stories about characters struggling, characters who are suffering, characters who are in the wild, just like 
living by like hanging by a thread with their life but norm a lot of the time like the actresses or the actors who play them are just simply too glamorous or too famous and with this that's not the case like a lot of the characters like they like the clothes they're wearing are dirty like they have bad teeth they have like dirty teeth they just like look like they've really experienced this whole process so I, I really do have to say that like and the, and the way John Terrell just perfectly captures it all it, it really is a breath of fresh air when you're when, when I was going through all these best picture nominees mm, and it does seem like an odd duck when you compare it to some of the other nominees from this year where you do have a lot of examples of extravagant Hollywood filmmaking. And I love that. Generally, I think it's fantastic. I don't say that as a negative. But again, as you said, it does make you wonder why this not necessarily small Swedish film, because I believe this was the highest budget Swedish film ever made at the time. It was a blockbuster of sorts. But we all know that the Academy isn't particularly open to foreign language cinema. So it is interesting that this movie that overseas didn't necessarily make waves, at least financially, did achieve so much success with the Academy, who are notorious for being interested in financial success and in campaigns that allow voters to attend parties at which they drink champagne and applied with all sorts of gifts. Yeah, that's that's the Harvey Weinstein era for you. <laughs> and yeah, mm. so do you want to just get into the story? Or do you have any anything else sure. on, on yeah, why you do it? Yeah, just for the sake of this podcast, uh, I would like to say that I, I like to think of this film in three sections. There's the home mm. life and why they decide to go there's the journey and then there's the arrival so just like starting with the like home life you i mean the first half of this movie is them in sweden on their farm it is mm -hmm. just this very interesting family dynamic with you know christina who's Liv Ullman, and carl oscar who's max von Sydow. You like you see them get married they have kids they all work on this farm and the starting conflict is that their younger brother, Robert, played by Eddie Axberg, you know, he has ideas of moving to America. And then eventually Carl Oscar has ideas of moving to America and all these horrible things happen to their farm. They can't produce any more food. Their daughter dies. It just becomes a mess and they can't live there anymore. So they decide to tra travel to America and you see all these interesting things about you know Swedish family dynamics and how farmers were able to make money in the 1800s so what I'm just gonna curious like what did you think about this setup as a whole I think it is an interesting setup because you can definitely tell that there are aspects of the story that in a novel probably would have received more development or more time to occur. For instance, when Carl Oscar and Christina get together, get married, have a bunch of kids, we basically just cut from him walking up to her while she's on a swing. Then we see them go off, they're getting romantic. We see him kissing her neck 
And then we basically cut to several years later where they're already a married couple with kids. So you don't get a whole lot of their courtship. You're meant to just accept the fact that, yes, they're in love. They want to be together. So I think that's one of the things that people would point to as an example of the adaptation having to take away some of the nuance of the book. But then in other ways, I think it really does work to show you this community rather than just isolating the the main family that the film focuses on. And I would also say it's really admirable in the way that it makes Robert's storyline feel essential rather than him just being the comic relief or this character who is seemingly useless or doesn't serve much of a point in the plot. I think they do really work to give him a parallel arc to his brother, who is still the main character, and yet he does feel essential. And all of his foibles and all of his issues with his job and his problems with romancing young women all feel really important. And you do grow fond of him, even though he is, I'm going to use some coarse language, sort of the family fuck up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I just think, well, before I I talk about Robert, I I really did appreciate that this isn't a romanticized look at marriage. This is a couple who's normal, who runs a farm, and the film really makes that clear. It wants to get to the point quickly so it can develop into its more, quote-unquote, important storylines. But regarding Robert, I, I think it's interesting because he does kind of have this, like, silly aura he is kind of a kid at heart and and first of all he literally looks like he could be Max von Sydow's son like they do not look like they could be brothers <laughs> I, I just said that so I think odd Max von Sydow is playing a character who is much younger than he actually was because I believe he was in his early 40s when they made this and His character at the beginning, you have his father saying, oh, are you going to get married? And I sort of thought, I get that men had more time to settle down back then than women did, but it still seems like he's remarkably old for somebody who was just considering getting a wife and having children. Yeah, and he he just looks so much older than Eddie Axberg so I, I thought it was interesting because he really I mean I'm serious like he really could be his son like I, like I like you could look at the picture and think he's the son but anyways I, I just think it's interesting that he's the one who you really see have this idea of traveling he's the one who sort of makes the first move about it even though he only tells it to Arvid so it, it's this unique character who really just isn't a minimal part in it as you said he's not just trying to be this comic relief he's not just trying to be this person who's there to make the film looser and less you know tense or less like miserable in ways I do think that his character has some of that but at the same time is not one note really is just a well fleshed out character who is given many moments just like to debrief and and have a, a nice solid arc So I agree with you there. Hmm. Yes, that's certainly true. And I did, it's not even really a criticism, but 
those introductions to a lot of the characters are very quick but I think the movie really does make up for that by giving you a long time to get to know them after that and you really soak up the atmosphere in their household and feel like you understand their dynamics more than you would in some other Hollywood epics for instance far and away where you're meant to accept that Nicole Kidman is just in love with Tom Cruise after knowing <laughs> him all of five minutes and is going to go to America and is going to remain committed to him for the rest of her life. And it's completely unbelievable. And I think in this one, again, as you say, because it's not this romanticized version of a marriage, we do sense that there is a practical element to their partnership. And we do get scenes where she's talking about something like pregnancy, which yes, is very personal. But from her standpoint, it's also a big concern because back then women were essentially placing themselves at risk in getting pregnant because doctors weren't nearly as knowledgeable when it came to understanding how to treat pregnant woman and a lot of women died after having children so I completely get where she was coming from and they also don't know how to feed the children that they already have because they're so poor the land is infertile the equipment keeps breaking so I think that scene works really well to illustrate the fact that she is able to take a more pragmatic view of their lives and of course he does convince her to keep having sex with him and so I suppose you see there there is a bit of romance there is a spark in their marriage they don't just view one another as business partners but they're still far more practical than the characters that you might find in other films where you would need some great passionate love to stand at the center of the story. Yeah I think that her opening moments aren't scenes of her wishing for a man or dreaming about a man. They're scenes of her swinging on a swing and, you know, walking through this land just like as a young woman. So you really are introduced to this character as she's sort of this easygoing, more free woman who holds concerns, but like completely reasonable ones that all women in this time would face. I'm not saying she doesn't like it's not I'm not saying she doesn't want a man like like she does of course but her introduction doesn't give her this silly and traditional arc in which it, it expresses so deeply that all she wants in life is a man no like she's independent she understands her motives and she is very personal but also willing to be in a relationship and start a business with a man so I, I just really like that little detail about her character because it just Again, it's refreshing to see people portrayed in 70s movies like this. Mm. And I even think the script does give her character some flaws, even though you can understand where she's coming from, where of the two in the marriage, she is definitely the more religious one. You could even call her a bit of a Puritan. And when her, I think it's her uncle who's leading this religious fundamentalist movement, she disapproves of the fact that he has taken a prostitute under his wing and offered her a chance at redemption and starting a new life where she doesn't have to deal with this 
dark past. And so we sense that Christina, even though she claims to be committed to this Christian model of morality, finds it very difficult to forgive people and does hold grudges. And the scenes that you referenced where Liv Ullman does get to be a bit loud, she gets to act with a capital A, you could say, are the scenes in which they are on the boat and she accuses the prostitute or former prostitute, Monica, of having given her and the members of her family lice. And so it's this very charged scene where you see her weaponizing anti-prostitute sentiment against this other woman, essentially accusing her of being a slut and using that prejudice to discredit this woman without any evidence. And so I think in that scene, you are really asked to question where Christina stands. Is she somebody who is too set in her ways to realize the fact that no you need allies you need other Swedes to support you if you're going to survive this experience and we could briefly talk about the sequel I think that does a really good job of developing her character and showing how even though she's not perfect in the second film by any means she does start to learn how to forgive and to forget and to accept the fact that people make mistakes. Mm, yeah, I was going to say that she says that like the Lord is the reason for the weather problems and the poor harvest. There are several instances where Carl Oscar makes a mistake, like a small mistake, whether it's in a conversation or just working on the farm. And she like tells him to apologize to the Lord when it's just a brief mistake. And as you said, like in the sequel, you're she's in America, she's she's in this whole new environment, and she develops in a way that, yes, she is still very religious and strict about God and beliefs and beliefs for her family. But she does have a sense of, I understand other perspectives. I will let people make mistakes more often. So it's kind of a, a really beautiful moment of subtlety that like the script gives her all these different chances where as an audience you, you really see all of them and are able to sympathize with her so much and I, I just always thought it was interesting how how rooted this whole town was in, in the first film at the beginning like how rooted this whole town was I mean how religious they really were because her uncle like he was getting threatened for starting other beliefs within the town and spreading his own beliefs so you really understand that this is a strictly religious town and those who don't really follow the main religion are sort of seen as threats to this society. And I think it's interesting how Jean Chouel paints this without holding back at all. He doesn't attempt to make it seem worse or better than it is. I, I don't think you know what the priest says and what these religious leaders say is completely like not understandable as though these people who have to hold like beliefs of this whole town and attempt to get everyone on the same page. But I do understand that it, it's just, you know, you have all these different perspectives and how there are people who hold different beliefs and how some people don't really understand that. So I think it does a really good job at showcasing how religion can be such like this grueling force amongst a lot of people's lives and how Christina has really just like enforced it in her lifestyle as a whole and her relationship and how she connects it to her environment and the farm itself. So 
I, I again, like I didn't expect this film to have such religious undertones. Oh yes, and I'm sorry, I forgot, sorry, the prostitute's name is Ulrika as a character, but she's played by an actress called Monica Zetterland. So sorry, that was the source of my mistake, I apologize. But yes, I can completely see what you're saying there. And he does do a really good job at offering a portrait of this time period. And clearly one of the main objectives of the novel or just the story is to make a point about the suffering that poor Speeds had to endure during this period. And I think it is really impressive that the characters don't just feel like axioms or ideas that are meant to stand in for well-rounded, three-dimensional human beings. They do have real personality traits and you can feel empathy for them instead of being asked to pity them. I don't think you're meant to entirely feel bad for these people or to look down on them as these victims of this horrible fate. There is this sense that they are able to take their lives in their own hands and they do make this very risky decision going to America. But you sense a lot of that bravery that comes through. And I also appreciated the fact that our main characters are not young, impulsive people who are just desperate to start a new life. They are these slightly older parents of many, many children. They have a lot of responsibilities to deal with. And so picking everything up and moving to a new country is far more difficult for them. And I think you really sense the weight of that decision because they aren't presented as these young whippersnappers with lots of dreams who feel like they can achieve anything. There is the very real sense that this could fail for them. They could die out at sea. They could arrive in America and starve to death. And so I think that gives everything this extra weight, the fact that they are these relatively responsible older people with a lot of experience and they know that everything could go wrong. And then you have that perspective contrasted with Robert's perspective, where he's this very hopeful, optimistic, wide-eyed young man who basically thinks that he's invincible and can't imagine anything taking him down. Yeah, good, very good description there of the whole initial dynamic. Because these... I mean, these are sacrifices that these people are going through. And as I said, like Terrell does a very good job at not holding back. He explicitly showcases that this family is very poor and is at the bottom of the barrel. They appear to be hopeless. So first of all, you do have that interesting sense of hope from Robert. And there's also like, as I said before, that moment where the, their daughter dies because she eats a grain that kind of tears up her stomach. And, and there's also a scene where Robert has to, you know, kill a cat by throwing the cat in a sack and putting him in the river. So it doesn't hold back with regards to the fate of these characters, but it also doesn't hold back in showing, showcasing the physical aspect of what they have to go through every day as farmers, as these very poor people. So I really appreciate how authentic that portrayal was and how at the same time you aren't looking down at them because you are really just placed into the headspace of these characters since it all feels so real with the way it's shot and the way it looks. It, it really 
feels immersive. So you're at the same level with these people as opposed to looking down on them, which is what I really appreciate. Mm, that's certainly true. And the cinematography does contribute to a lot of that. I know I'm talking about this in very general terms, and I'm sure somebody who is more knowledgeable about the work of the people or about Jan Trowell's filmmaking process could probably provide more insight into what he does, but he did take on a lot of positions in making this film. He edited it, he directed it, he co-wrote the screenplay, he took care of the cinematography. It's just a lot, and you really do get the sense of a, a sustained, consistent vision. You watch a lot of films where there are a lot of elements that seem to be at odds with one another, and that doesn't always produce a bad outcome. Sometimes it's interesting to see a film where it feels like the director had a completely different take on the material to the screenwriter. And so you get this interesting clash of perspectives within the film. But in the case of this movie, I think it really works that there's such a consistent vision. And again, we'll talk about the second film, but that definitely carries over. And you get the sense of this cohesive duology rather than getting a weird sequel that was made eight years later where they couldn't bring back one of the main cast members so there had to be a recasting and somebody walked off set because they'd become a diva I don't think you get <laughs> any of that and it's really positive yeah definitely it is just such a natural and consistent movie all the way through you see all of these Swedish landscapes like in the beginning and although they don't seem traditionally beautiful I do think that they work tremendously well because they feel familiar it just reminds me like if you've ever been in a rural area or just a forest or a field during the winter or a cold time period and it captures the essence of these locations during those times not just through the cinematography and how well balanced it is but also through the sounds and the emphasis on certain objects in nature and just the way the characters interact with the setting it just feels so familiar to me whereas a lot of these Hollywood movies from the 70s either glamorize or just over exaggerate the locations but with this I really just felt so connected to the setting. I think that's true and I think one of the things that helps it do that is that it gives you a sense of how this lifestyle could be idyllic, why these people feel such affection for their home country and the comfort that it provides them with. But it also shows you how restrictive it could be to be in this very small Swedish town where if the crops aren't growing, you have no way to get out. You can't make money out of anything else and you will starve if that one source of income and food and resources just isn't providing you with anything. And so as time goes on, all of those landscapes that had looked pretty, that had seemed bucolic, end up looking very restrictive. And you can see why this family starts to feel as though they need to get out. It isn't just this vague yearning to go somewhere else. It is this need to be in a place where they can grow food. They don't have to worry about their young daughter starving to a point where she ends up 
eating grain that blows up in her stomach and kills her. That was one of the most horrifying scenes. And even when they get to America, a lot of it is presented in this very romantic light where you do have them finally getting to this location at the end of a long journey. But it is fascinating that I don't think they do too much to draw a line between the two locations because perhaps this is stereotyping, but the landscape of Minnesota, where again, it is this very cold place where it snows a lot, it does look fairly similar to Sweden. So I don't think they go, America is sunny and full of foliage and greenery. And Sweden is this sad frozen tundra where everybody walks around with a sad expression on their face. I think they they don't do too much of that obvious stereotyping that gets you to go, America, good, Sweden, bad. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think that Part of it was just that they wanted to move to an area that they could do the same things, but not be in such dire circumstances and not experience such danger and have to worry so often about their children. Because, in, I mean, in the sequel, you do see horrific moments, one in which there's a heavy snowstorm and you know, I was reminded of The Revenant because, you know, they, the Carl Oscar has to kill a cow and like place the child inside of this dead cow just so the child doesn't die of frostbite and doesn't die because he gets too cold. It, it's just so interesting to see that they have to realize that they're still going to suffer a lot and have a lot of difficulties in this area, but they will have enough to produce for their family and they won't have to worry nearly as much about food and about survival although that is still their top priority and concern. So yes, I, I think that it was really showcasing, we, we gotta get out of here. At the same time, they wanted to be in an area that was familiar because they didn't wanna just do something completely different. Living in an American society, barely no knowing how to speak English is different enough for them. They, wa they wanna have the same occupations and live a similar life. They just don't wanna be in that really just uncompromising, lethal area. Mm. Yes, I think that is one of the main themes of the film, that idea of survival and how far would a person go in order to achieve a better life. And the prospect of immigrating does seem very scary and very risky. And the movie does such a great job at setting up the stakes, which I think some movies fail to do, where it feels like, ah, it's just a fun adventure going to America, Oof. traveling on a boat across thousands of miles of ocean. And oh, there, there definitely aren't storms. I'm not going to get scurvy on this boat. And you think, no, you read about the stories of Italian immigrants in the 1920s, and it sounds like hell getting yeah. into America. And so I think this movie does a better job of convincing you that, oh, no, these people went through a whole lot before they even showed up in this environment where they feel completely isolated. And it is interesting that moment where they do show up, we feel alienated, even as English speakers, 
when they get off the boat and they can hear all of these people speaking in English and it's so strange and foreign to them and we've gotten so used to hearing them speak in Swedish and so it is this disorienting moment that made me feel unease at least where you just feel so bad for Max von Sydow where he's showing up in these taverns and asking people for directions and oh, you just want to help him or something because the the situation is so desperate. Mm, yeah, I, I just want to say this before I forget about it. And this is this is a little off topic because this film is about immigration from Mexico to America, and obviously that's a shorter distance between Europe and America. But I, I'm looking on Letterbox now, and it actually turns out you've seen this film. It's called Under the Same Moon. It is a awful film that I had to watch for Spanish class. I, I, I told my teacher, yeah, I told my teacher, can we watch Pan's Labyrinth? Can we watch Roma? No, I have something else in mind was the answer. This is what we watched. And, and I have to say like the way this film shows the immigration process, obviously there, there were a few spritz of violence. It just completely glamorizes it all. And yes, as I said, this is from Mexico to America where we, <laughs> the emigrants is a movie about people <laughs> moving from, Sweden, Europe to America, but I just can't help but feel like this this movie didn't do a good job at showing any sort of harsh reality. And I I, I know it's like a stupid movie. I just brought it up, but I think it, one, it's hilarious that you've seen it as well and even know what it is. And two, just like the fact that it, it's just like in comparison to the immigrants, just does not do a good job at showcasing the harsh reality of moving to another country. Hmm. And I believe it was somewhat controversial at the time that, oh, the Academy is only open to rewarding this movie about immigration from the perspective of these white Europeans from a country that was prosperous, at least in the 1970s. And I know that's always very controversial where horrible white supremacists go, mm, well, if we're going to have immigrants, they need to be from countries full of white people. And that's an absolutely horrible view to take. But again, we can get into it with the second film. I think this series goes a bit further than others in acknowledging the fact that these immigrants during this period when America was this new frontier that was being opened up to the world, a lot of that land was taken from Native Americans and it wasn't as though there were just random plots of land that were there for immigrants. No, the government took them off of people who had been living there. And so I think even in the 1970s, they were absolutely terrible at Native American representation in Hollywood. And you were seeing a slight show of guilt on the part of some for the racism that had been so prevalent in American movies. For Marlon Brando days. wins Best Actor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the, the Sachin Little Feather speech. And I think at least this series does something to address that. I'm not saying it's perfect. I think from a modern perspective, you would ask, why not more? Why not more guilting? Why don't they ask more hard-hitting questions about this issue? But I do think it's sort of sad that it took this Swedish movie to take a progressive view on an issue like this. And American movies were generally so far behind on this problem. Yeah, I mean, 
I think that's just part of it. A lot of the reasons when, when you watch movies from other countries, just the filmmaking techniques and the storytelling methods and just the thoughts behind it are so different. And when I watch a lot of European films, there is just certain American, you know, stereotypes that aren't there. And that's why it's so refreshing. So just as a whole, this is this was like a perfect example of that. And then I just like want to talk about the journey itself and the way they got to America. I mean, this part was like the most difficult to sit through because you really have to get into the perspective of people who are just completely suffering. Many people oh, crammed in into- blood. Oh. oh, oh my God. Yeah. She, and, and here's, here's something I want to say. I hate it. Just absolutely hate <laughs> when American movies symbolize that a character is dying when they cough into a tissue and there's blood in the tissue. I don't know why I hate it so much, but it's just such a cheap and idiotic way of showing that your character is dying because they coughed into a tissue and there's red on the tissue. Like the the fact that like in this movie, we just see a bucket of blood on the ground while she's just suffering in bed. I I think it's so much, it's just such a more useful way of showcasing that a character is like really sick or could die as opposed to just them coughing in a tissue. I just think it's so lazy. Yes, I think I get why you hate that trope. And I think it might be because it is a trope that is tied to a lot of women's pictures, especially older ones where women have tuberculosis or, as it was known, consumption. And I think it tends to be used to symbolize the fact that, oh, she's feminine. She's weak. Her body isn't strong enough. And I think there's a lot of that involved. And you think... No, if a woman was suffering from a horrible disease like that, it would probably look more like what Lee Willman looks like in this movie, where she looks like her body has been completely drained of life. She's within an inch of death and she doesn't look more beautiful as she inches nearer and nearer to dying. Mm, Yeah. Well, you said like, I, I don't, I probably don't like this trope because of, you know, women in film I I was just thinking about biopics (sighs) Bohemian Rhapsody specifically yeah it's just this trope that happens a lot in general regardless that just bothers me but yeah the way that Liv Ullman is just completely suffering on this boat in this I, I, I learned about this there's a term called steerage which is just basically the bottom of the boat where like on a cruise ship or on a fancy ship it's just like where all the poor people would go but this boat doesn't have a place where the richer people would go they're all poor they're all crammed into smaller areas everyone is coughing everyone is you know praying that they can eat or drink water and you just see her in this complete state of misery it's so difficult to watch and this is you know when as you said earlier like maybe it's when she's using capital a acting but I do appreciate that she is still authentic and believable in her rants while she's screaming at the at the woman who she thinks gave her life. I mean, what would you do in that situation? Like, if I were so sick under such harsh conditions and found out I got lice and thought it was from someone around me, I would scream at them just like that. So it's a very believable portrayal of her struggle and her inner conflict and how her sickness sort of takes over her. Mm. And even with Ullman's performance, and I think with all of the performances, really, it's a uniformly strong 
cast. But a Definitely. lot of people talk about the fact that it's really difficult to act in ethics. And especially with Hollywood movies, again, you do tend to get situations where movie stars are cast. And a lot of movie stars are very talented actors. I'm not of the opinion that, oh, movie stars are all fake and none of them are good at their jobs. I think you can point to plenty of stars that give great performances. But often they end up being drowned out by the spectacle around them and they don't really get the opportunity to display any of the charisma that made them stars in the first place and so you get a lot of stars who just sort of disappear in movies that they're meant to be headlining and I think in the case of this film uh, Von Sydow and Ullman do face a similar problem you could say because I don't think this is one of those movies where it's meant to be an acting showcase where the acting is meant to come to the fore. When you look at an Ingmar Bergman film, and of course, Ullman was his one-time romantic partner and long-time muse, all of those movies do ask for a lot of acting. When you watch something like Autumn Sonata, Ingrid Bergman and Liev Ullman are really given the opportunity to perform for the audience. And there's not a whole lot to distract from what they're doing. But in this movie, Ullman sort of has to compete with the cinematography and the scenery for the audience's attention. And I think she does that in a really unshowy manner. You don't get the sense of somebody who is constantly chewing the scenery. But when there is a moment where she has to strongly hit a character beat for Christina so that her emotional arc has an impact at the end of the film she really does take it. Just that bed scene that we talked about earlier where she's expressing her concerns over continuing to sleep with her husband and she's worried about having more kids, that really works. She drives that home, you completely get a sense of who this woman is and then you do have to wait a bit for another scene that's really an acting showcase. But I think it's a sign of just how good of an actor she is that she in Twitter terms, understood the assignment and got the fact that she was going to have to modulate this performance in a specific manner to get it to fit into the framework of a larger epic. Yeah, for sure. The movie, it, as you said, it's not like ultimately trying to get her to showcase how talented of an actress she is, although it clearly does do that. I don't know if this is like wrong on my behalf, but like so far my favorite performance of hers is Autumn Sonata. So I don't know if that has something to say about me and, and how I do really like occasionally can really like capital A acting. But I mean, I, I do of course love her performance so much in, in both The Emigrants and The New Land. I think she is incredibly believable. And, you know, in, in a sense really gives a, a performance that isn't meant to look like a performance because she's just trying to be this completely she's really she's really is this character she really sinks her teeth into the role and becomes a character and isn't trying to chew the scenery she becomes a part of the scenery and and that of course is because the film is so immersive and so well directed but she doesn't have to do so much in order to stand out i think she just naturally is a great force of emotion subtlety and just realistic mannerisms of, of humans. So I think she does give a really good performance. 
Yes, I really think she does. And she does contrast nicely with Monica Zetterland, who plays Ulrika, who is sort of her nemesis at one point in time, where you do get a sense of Christina's piety, of her social standing in comparison to this lower class woman. And so you do see all of the differences between their mannerisms. Christina definitely holds herself as though she is superior to this other woman. And it is a real pleasure to see some of that superiority go away over time, to melt away as she realizes that maybe it's not great to have some of these prejudices. And I think she's really good at doing that in a gentle manner. It's this slow decline from a position of power into an understanding that, oh God, we're in this completely new community. I feel lost and there's really no point in drawing random distinctions between myself and other people in this group of Swedish immigrants. Yeah, she she does play a character that you feel very connected to as she is so familiar. She is just a completely just like she she really is an understandable woman. All of her intentions, all of her actions are so realistic and dare I say not cinematically traditional to the point where you like while I was watching it, I don't even think about that. I, I just she's just there to me. She really just develops into the character so naturally. And that, I, again, that's just a testament to how talented she is because she really makes it seem like this is an easy thing to do when of course, th- I mean, this is not an easy role to play, but she makes it seem that way. And, th- and those are some of the best performances that make it look easy, that make it just feel like they've been this character before the movie and will be this character after the movie. And she nails that. Yes, she definitely does. Yeah, so- Was there anything else that stood out to you about the acting? Well, Max von Sydow is also incredible. He is very much playing a compelling and admirable person who showcases his imperfections in a really understanding way. I think that he also sinks into the character so well to the point where you don't really realize that he's acting. He just understands it so well into feeling like the lows and the highs of each moment to the point where it just feels so genuine. So I I really liked his performance a lot. And as you said, just like everyone in the cast is doing that. They all feel like perfectly normal human beings who fit into the story so well. Eddie Axberg is also very good as Robert. Everyone in this movie is great. Yes, yes. It is a really uniformly strong cast. They all seem like they're on the same page. There's no conflict between acting styles going on here and I really like the fact that they play off against one another so well yeah same and I just think that with regards to talking about like the boat scenes I really tend to hate shaky cam in films obviously I I always understand its intent and how it's trying to be more realistic but sometimes it feels so overbearing to me and it gives me a headache and it's just irritating. So I, I really just usually hate shaky cam. 
I tend to get distracted and annoyed. But with this film, it isn't overused and it's used very appropriately to the point where it actually made me feel more immersed in the setting and made me feel like, like even more like I was on the boat with these people and suffering as well. So just regards to the cinematography, again, it works shockingly well with regards to how immersive it is and how well it's able to control its environment and put it on the screen. Yes, I was very happy to see that it did get a lot of recognition from other awards bodies too that weren't just the Academy. And I think that really goes to show how widely admired it was at the time. Yeah, for sure. I also think it's interesting that <laughs> I hate this. Like, I just like hate that this movie didn't get a cinematography nomination because it probably should have won. Oh God, the, the 1972, <laughs> you just had strange nominations in the craft categories. I know we discussed yeah. Butterflies Are Free on a podcast. That received a cinematography <laughs> nomination, which over is- Over this. Insane. And over The Godfather. And Deliverance. <laughs> yes, it, it's weird. It is weird. Uh, aye, aye, aye. And, and like the new land also should have gotten a cinematography nomination. <laughs> like, oh, of course. Yeah. yeah I, I think it's like they're not only like nice to look at in a lot of ways, but just so smart and so well composed and so realistic. And I just don't understand how you can nominate Butterflies Are Free and Travels with My Aunt <laughs> over this. Oh, the Travels with My Aunt nomination is even more egregious. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, what did you think of the ending? I appreciated the ending, and I think they did have a really difficult job. They did have to combine two books into one film in order to get this made. And because we know that it's part of this duology, I think it would have been really difficult to find a place to end the film because you want it to have this self-contained story. But then with the second film, you don't want it to feel like one of those awkwardly constructed sequels that doesn't really have a point, that doesn't seem to justify its own existence, and just feels like this useless continuation of a story that had already been wrapped up. And so you do get a sense of their satisfaction with their lives in this new area, but there's still a sense that a lot of work still has to be done in order to settle down there in order to build new lives in this area and I think it's nice that it ends on this moment of contentment and satisfaction rather than continuing with the bleakness because I know that we often talk about Hollywood endings where there's this idea that oh they they take away all of the darkness and stories and they try to present people with these artificial happy endings but then I'm also not really of the mind that all dark unhappy endings are more realistic inherently I think you get a lot of Zack Snyder-esque movies where it's meant to be this dark, twisted, edgy take on some story and it just comes across as really forced and contrived to me and I think if screenwriters can come up with a way 
that feels natural to introduce an ending that isn't necessarily bleak or unhappy, then I'm fine with that. I don't see that as something that takes away from the overall impact of a film, even if it's aiming to make a point about people living in poverty or people who are desperate to get out of their country. Yeah, I completely agree. I I don't think this film needed to have a sad ending to work because the way the ending is portrayed really flows with everything that's been happening. It isn't necessarily cathartic, but it is rewarding because you go on this long journey with them, you see all their suffering, all their pain, all their needs, and and they finally... I don't know if they they don't reach an end. They don't have a complete moment of satisfaction. They still need to build a home and adjust to a new environment. But it's very hopeful. And just this beautiful moment of a new beginning. And you see these characters in a position where they have enthusiasm and positivity towards their new situation. So I agree. I, I think it's completely works that this movie's ending is not sad and is much more po- and ending on a positive note. I would agree. And I also think it's definitely not the most challenging aspect of Max von Sydow's role, but I think he does act that moment really well. It could have come across as so cheesy and so forced, but it really just worked for me. He seems so relaxed for once. You can see all of the tension draining out of his body. And it was just pleasing to me. I walked away from the film on this oddly positive note, even though I did not forget about all of the hardships that they faced during most of the film. Yes, exactly. I I think that film does a nice job. Like there are people who I assume would watch this film and not the sequel, and it would just do a nice job at saying like, there's hope for this family and it it can end on a note that isn't entirely negative. So it is a nice way to sort of wrap it up and give a good segment into the new land, which it it really just is a continuation of this film. So it's interesting to see this set of films and how the ending of this one really connects to the beginning of the next one. So it is a a very good ending. I just think it's rewarding to see him mark the tree, know that this is our territory. We earn this as an audience member. You've been with them, like you, you, are a member of their family in a way because you have experienced everything that they have. You've heard all of their important conversations and know how they feel. So it's a nice rewarding moment in which you see this character and this family achieve what they want to. Yes, I think it's a really great note to close it out on. Yes. So would you like, do you have any final remarks or would you like to move on to our questions? I think we could move on to the questions and I think they'll spark some discussion. Yes, so our first questions are from Owen. If you have seen the film sequel, The New Land, which do you prefer? So personally, I prefer the first film even though I do think that The New Land is probably one of the best sequels that has ever been made, I just think that the first one is a bit more even. It's less messy than the second film. I think the second movie really struggles to make Robert's 
plot lines feel connected to the main plot. In that movie, they do feel a bit more disjointed. And you could argue that that's the point. The filmmaker is trying to argue that rather than being part of the family the family unit, Robert has been permanently cut off from it. And in trying to be this independent cowboy, he has lost a sense of his own identity. And then when he does come back and he dies, you're meant to feel as though this has been a life that has been wasted. But I just remember thinking when he does go out into the desert and you see him buying the wild cat money, they use some odd camera work that was off-putting to me and it felt experimental in a way that I didn't appreciate. So that was the only takeaway for me from the second film where I loved the rest of it, thought it was a fantastic continuation of this story, but that one bit didn't work for me, even though I can see people defending the decisions that they made. I was going to say the exact same thing about the second one in the sense that there are sequences that feel a bit more experimental or hypnotic and use more artistic styles of filmmaking, but it is just a total continuation of it. It really could be a six and a half hour movie if it wanted to be, but I'm going to agree and say the first one just because I like that you see a little bit of their assimilation to in America and the second one and how how they re- respond to the environment as well as their home life in Sweden and, and just the whole journey. I think that interests me more because the second one is a bit more historically oriented as we explore a lot of 1800s America and the Civil War, Abe Lincoln, all of that. But the first one just feels more like a story about a family and their struggles where the second one is a lot more historically oriented. So I, I do agree that I think the first one is better, but it, it really isn't that much of a difference as they are very related and the second one's just a very exact continuation. Yes, I definitely think that's fair to say. And we're both big fans of the sequel, so yeah. it's definitely not us bashing the new land and saying that it's this terribly inferior product that doesn't hold up when compared to the first film. There are just a couple of tweaks here and there that could have been made to improve it slightly. Yeah, here here's an interesting thing. I think that the second one should have been called The Immigrants because the first one is about emigration. It's about leaving your home. But the second one is about coming to a new place. So I, I, I just think that would have been a cool detail if they called the second one The Immigrants because, I mean, th- there really is a distinction between the two terms. You are technically doing both at the same time. These people were doing, like, that, that's how it works. Like, you leave a new place, come to a new place. I just think it would have been cool if, if the second one was called the the immigrants although i do think the new land makes sense as a title hmm. yes and it did lead to a kurt russell miniseries i believe it's got adapted <laughs> into an american miniseries yeah. i don't even think is that even available to watch anymore or is it just Ooh. gone i'm not sure hmm. yeah we'll never know <laughs> yeah and then owen also asked if you were to make the film shorter, which scenes do you think are unnecessary? 
Mm. Yeah, I think that's sort of difficult to figure out. One of the things that I liked about it was that it felt so sprawling in a way, and there wasn't this sense of a very clear three-act structure. I think the issue with a lot of epics that are adapted from books is that you're sort of getting this Cliff Notes version, Cliff's Notes version of a novel where you're basically being told this happens and now this has to happen in the second act and this will happen in the third act and it's all structured around this one historical event and you're meant to take this very seriously and I think this movie really, really takes its time and doesn't work so hard to make you feel this sense of historical importance. I think it benefits from the fact that it doesn't attach itself to one specific historical event. It's not like one of those World War II movies that largely pushes World War II into the background so you can focus on some generic love story. I think this one works much better on a personal level, on a, a small scale level. And I can't really see myself cutting out any specific section. I suppose you could generally trim it down. Maybe you could argue that some of the shots of the nature were held for too long. So perhaps I would say that. But even then, I sort of liked those. I didn't take issue with them. Neither did I. I, I. I think they made it more immersive and just more easy for me to connect to it because the settings were so familiar. I, I, I agree. I, I, I don't know if I would necessarily cut any scenes and I don't think it's too long. I just think in general, just whenever I watch a three-hour movie, I'm going to get a bit antsy. I'm going to need to take breaks. So with that regard, I mean, that's pretty obvious. But I do think it's very consistent with its pacing and how it, its scenes like are important to the story. So I don't know if I would cut out anything because every scene is important in some way or the other. But just in general, I do get a little antsy with longer movies. Oh, me too. But I think one of the things that made me appreciate it more is that I have been watching a lot of epics from the 40s and 50s recently that are considerably shorter than this one in terms of running time that feel five times as long. And so I think watching this one, it passed me by so quickly. I never found myself checking my watch. I never found myself wriggling around on the couch it was just a pleasurable experience in comparison to those films where I felt like time was standing still, five minutes felt like an eternity. And I think this one really, really benefits in comparison to something like Samson and Delilah. Yeah, well, I barely heard of that film and never will see it. So there's that. Good for you. <laughs> yeah, I probably won't watch it, but I, I just think that the fact that Troll just lets the movie breathe so much and allows you to be a part of it makes it less boring. And it is definitely one of the best long movies I've seen because of that. And I think it does an incredible job at showcasing every emotion that would you would expect from a situation like this. So no no trimming out any scenes for me. Hmm. Yeah, and then final question. I mean, a lot of people sort of collectively talked about this and asked this question 
which was the eligibility rules and how it, it got a foreign film nomination the year before when it got nominated for four major categories the year after. Yes, so this is one of those weird things that you seemed to get a lot more back in the day. Uh, I believe, didn't Laurence Olivier's Henry V was officially released in 1944, and then it only got nominated for Academy Awards in 1946. So you get a lot of that, or you even have foreign films like, I think, La Talente, which was a 1934 release in most other countries, was eligible for Academy Awards in 1947 in the US. So that's a 13-year difference. And so I think you get a bit less of it now where I know it's common to have foreign films that get nominated a year after they were officially released in other countries. But I don't feel like there's as much of a gap anymore in terms of distribution. Yeah, and and part of it is that I don't know how many Academy members would be able to see this film and vote for it the year before, because, I mean, the foreign film branch, I don't know too much about it, but I, I can only assume the way it got in was there were some people from Sweden who all nominated it or people near Sweden that were able to see it who nominated it. And the next year, the limited New York September release allowed more Academy members to see it and nominate it in major categories. So there's just this whole eligibility confusion that is annoying because if the movie was nominated for best foreign film the year after, then it would have won. But at the same time, we would not be talking about it if it had won that year. So. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But no, it is a weird case that I think a lot of people point to where they go, well, if it wasn't good enough to win best foreign language film, why was it eligible to be one of the five best films of a certain year? It's just an odd choice on their part to go, eh, yeah, maybe we'll put it in there. It seems very strange, the thought process behind it. And I know that sounds silly because when we discuss the Academy, we tend to talk about it as though they're all a hive mind and everybody conspired together to make something happen. And of course, we know it doesn't really work that way. It's mostly just a bunch of random people making decisions that were probably influenced by a wide variety of factors. But it's difficult not to speculate about what might or might not have influenced their decision making. Yes, for sure. And just like briefly touching on the year was nominated in the foreign film category. I haven't seen enough. I haven't seen any other of the nominees. So I can't really say whether I think it should have won or not, but I'm assuming it should have. Yeah, I'm just looking at the nominees and I think I'm with you in having not really heard of or seen any of the other ones. Oh, oh, sorry, I have seen The Garden of the Fimsy Contini's, and I know that was a big deal at the time, so I suppose I get why that one, but the policeman hadn't heard of it before. Oh, there was a Kurosawa movie nominated, of course, and then Tchaikovsky, which is, whoa, okay, a long Russian epic, so that makes sense. Mm, yeah, so 
I think it'll be best for us to just diverge into the year after where it got major nominations in categories where we've seen all the films. But before that, I just want to ask you, aside from the obvious competition of Cabaret and The Godfather, why do you think this film didn't win anything? Well, I think at the time, and you still have this now, but there was still a big resistance to the idea of a non-Hollywood production triumphing. I know we look at the 70s as this time when the traditional studio system was breaking down even further than it already had. And you did have these independent maverick filmmakers coming into Hollywood and making movies that were more shocking or violent or subversive than they would have been in previous decades. But I still think there was this sense especially in the Stuffy Academy, that even if they were going to give awards to something like Midnight Cowboy, these needed to be American films that dealt with American subjects. And foreign films, yes, they would fate them with awards in other categories. They might even give them a screenplay nomination because they always struggled to fill out the original screenplay category. But they still wanted to give the top prize to an American movie, preferably a hit. And I don't think that The Emigrants was breaking box office records and it was this Swedish film. And so I think that probably disadvantaged it. And again, what you were saying, I doubt that that many people saw it. It seems like this was sort of the niche movie that had massive critical acclaim behind it which probably propelled it into the, into the position that it was in. But then The Godfather was the highest grossing film of the year. It was a cultural phenomenon in a way that The Emigrants was never going to be. And it had the whole Marlon Brando comeback angle. And then Cabaret, you have Liza Minnelli, daughter of two Hollywood icons. She's coming up as a star at the time. She's this bright young talent and they just couldn't wait to reward her and I don't think that the emigrants really had a flashy storyline behind it I think Lee Bullman's whole thing was that she was this incredibly talented dramatic actress but even at this point I don't think there was the sense that she was a revelation or something everybody already knew and acknowledged that she was fabulous but it wasn't this big breakthrough into the American market that would have allowed her to make a big splash. Yeah, I think just the fact that this was able to get nominated is kind of a miracle because it's three hours long and in another language. And one, I I just suppose that everyone who saw this film that's an Academy member had to have voted for it because it opened in New York in September of that year. Like it didn't, it wasn't released in every theater in the US. It wasn't a big movie. It was, it was a small movie. So it must've just had such a strong level of support for it to get into these major categories, which ultimately pushed it to like having a, a, a bigger, you know, chance at the awards season. But the interesting thing is wh- why, why did they nominate something like this in Best Picture, but don't nominate something like Autumn Sonata or something like even Persona or 
just like several other Bergman movies, but they, they decide to nominate this very long Swedish epic. It's just very interesting to me that they were able to embrace it, embrace this. And, and maybe it is. Yeah. And maybe it's because it's a more easier story. It isn't confusing, but at the same time, it's, it's very interesting that this is one of the ones that they would recognize. No, I think I get it. What we were talking about, where I do think you watch this, and even though we pointed out the ways in which it is a bit arty in terms of its visual aesthetic, it does still feel like more of a traditional Hollywood epic than something like Autumn Sonata, which, to be fair, did do quite well for a foreign film, probably in large part because of which featured Ingrid Bergman, who was this Hollywood actress back in the 40s and 50s and I don't know if that movie would have done quite as well if it didn't have this big movie star in it but I would also say that one probably came fairly close to getting big nominations I can imagine it getting in if there had been a 10 slot set of best picture nominees in the 1978 year I can't imagine that happening. But then you talk about something like Persona, and I think that was very, very highbrow and art house at the time that it was released. And you look at the arc of Bergman in America, at least, and I think by the time that Fanny and Alexander was released, which did very well with the Academy, even though it didn't get a Best Picture nomination, I think he was sort of accepted as a a mainstream art house director in a way by then he had received enough media coverage to be not necessarily a household name but generally well known and maybe back in the mid 60s he was less famous he seemed like more of an outsider and I suppose it is notable that he did start making movies with American stars in the 70s and made English language productions and that probably allowed him to get an in in Hollywood that he didn't have back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm with you there. I, I, maybe I'm just saying this because I wish Autumn Sonata got nominated for Best Picture, but that, that's a whole other story. I think that... Yes, it is funny that Interiors, which is basically Woody Allen doing a rip-off of an Ingmar Bergman film or an homage to Bergman, did better in terms of its nominations hall than the actual Bergman movie. Yeah, it's so odd. I mean, I love both. I think both should have been nominated, but it's it's so interesting to me that they were able to embrace something so long, but then you look at its story and at its characters and find that the Academy loves this stuff. So it is it is nice that the emigrants was able to get recognized. And I suppose you could at least acknowledge that Bergman was definitely a mainstay in the best foreign language film category. I think the Virgin Spring won. He had a lot of nominees. So I don't think they completely shut him out. But as you point out, it was still very, very difficult for foreign language filmmakers to get an in in those bigger categories. There was still this attitude towards foreign language films that was very hostile and that essentially treated them as inferior product. Yeah, which is sad because 
foreign films are some of the best movies you'll see. So, and I'm glad that the Academy is recently starting to open up to more of them, which is just so nice because they deserve it. And then yeah. do you want to, do you want to move on to the categories themselves? Yes. Yeah. So our first category is adapted screenplay. It was nominated alongside Cabaret, Pete and Tilly, Sounder, and the winner was The Godfather. So would you give The Emigrants the win here? No. So I have to admit that I would go with The Godfather in this case. And Me too. I do think The Emigrants is a really impressive adaptation, but I just think, can you look past The Godfather? No, it's really difficult to. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. I think, I mean, I love all of these movies except for one of them. So, but, you know, Cabaret, that movie isn't as much about its script. So, I, and I have to say that The Godfather, I mean, that movie, like a lot of it is its script. So I do agree with that choice. But The Emigrants is, would have been a deserving winner. Yes, I, I certainly wouldn't have minded it if it had won. If Pete and Tilly had won, on the other hand. Oh. Oof. Yikes. That movie was not good at all. No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, this just, like, to me, makes sense as a category. But one, why wasn't Sleuth nominated here? Because that got a director nomination and two lead actor nominations. It just seems like it would so easily get nominated for adapted screenplay, but it didn't, which is a little odd to me. Maybe in the case of that film, because it is interesting that it nabs all of those top knots in categories that usually point to the fact that a film is close to getting a Best Picture nomination. Maybe it was just admiration for the individual's involved in the film that allowed it to get those nominations because you have Joseph L. Mankiewicz who is this legendary director won back-to-back best director awards is a big deal and you had the embarrassment of Cleopatra which sort of tarnished his reputation so maybe Sleuth which received pretty good reviews and was a box office hit was almost seen as a comeback and they just wanted to give Joseph a nomination because he was friends with a lot of members of the director's branch. I probably wouldn't put that past them because it does seem like there's plenty of cronyism going on in a category like that and all categories, to be honest. And you have Michael Caine and Laurence Olivier who both have plenty of nominations. So maybe they actually weren't into the film itself and they just wanted to give those guys who were fairly popular in Hollywood nominations. Yeah, I think that would make the most sense. But I just, I I think it was definitely like number six in that category and it was probably number six in best picture. I can only assume. Yeah, so it it just is a little odd that they nominate Pete and Tilly (laughs) over that. Yes. Maybe it was the Epstein connection where he wrote Casablanca and they went, oh, well, we love that. And he deserves another nomination. No, he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) No, he does not. Yeah. 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 
Okay, I have a question. Would you like to save best actors for last or do you want to get into it now? I think we could save that for last because we're probably yeah. going to go long on that. Yeah. Okay, so d- best director. The nominees were John, alongside John Terrell, were John Borman for Deliverance, Coppola for The Godfather, Mankiewicz for Sleuth, and your winner was, of course, Bob Fosse for Cabaret. So would you give John Terrell the win here? Oh, so this is very controversial, but I might. And I think he he beats Francis Ford Coppola by a hair. If you asked me in a couple of hours' time, I might tell you that I'm on Team Coppola. I think I can't really fully make up my mind in this case. But asking me now, spur of the moment, I would give it to Troel. And I'm not a cabaret fan, so Bob Fosse is not a contender in my eyes. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's tough because... Uh, I mean, I think all of these movies are really good. I need to rewatch Deliverance. I don't remember it well enough. But the other four, I, I mean, I love so much. I, I don't know what I... Hmm. Here's the thing, because I, I would give Bob Fosse the director win for all that jazz. So, like, if I give him the win for that and then give, like, someone else the win here, I, I might not feel as bad. But, I, I mean, I struggle between Fosse and Terrell and Coppola because they're all just such strong contenders to me I may I might have to stick with Fosse but at the same time like I don't want to discredit any of the other nominees but I I do like that Fosse won this I I think he's I mean Cabaret is my favorite of these so I suppose I agree with the choice but it's very difficult for me to pick Yes, it was a competitive year. And I think we look back now and go, how did Francis Ford Coppola lose? Because I do think historically, The Godfather is the most acclaimed film of the bunch. And I think Cabaret still has its very passionate fans. But with historical revisionism, I think we have forgotten about the fact that Cabaret is exactly the type of movie that Academy voters love and the godfather for all of the acclaim that it had received was slightly out of their wheelhouse and i know i sound ridiculous saying that because yes it is a movie about violent white men and the the (laughs) academy does love that but this musical it stars judy garland's daughter i think that was just too much for them to pass up yeah and, and i also think that him winning for the second movie I, because the thing is, I, I see on Twitter, no one is really that mad about Bob Fosse winning, partially because he won for the second one, but also because, as you said, Cabaret still does have a fan base. A lot of people still really, really love that movie. A lot of people think that's one of the best movies of the 70s. So it, it makes sense to me. And plus, it won literally every technical award. So him winning the directing award, it, it just makes so much sense to me. But so would have Coppola. And, and, I, and I am glad he won for the second one because I, I think I, I prefer the second Godfather to the first one. And I think that... Ooh, controversial. <laughs> is it though? Because I feel like a lot of people think that now. I feel like the critical reputation has shifted over time and probably will continue to evolve and change in the future. But I believe at the time of its release, 
there were a lot of critics going out of their way to say, oh, this is the rare sequel that improves upon its predecessor. And then you had historical revisionism decades later where people were saying, oh no, people were being too hyperbolic about part two. And actually the first one is more tidily constructed and look at all of the flaws in the second one. So I suppose it's just a, a debate that will never be resolved. Yes. Yeah, I do. I do prefer the second one, but obviously they're both phenomenal. So you can't really go wrong with The Godfather. But for now, in this category, I'm, I'm sticking with Bob Fosse. If John Truell won, that would be the most inspired thing that the Academy has ever done. <laughs> so, I, yeah, so I, I can't say that he would be undeserving. And honestly, not many of the I mean, Sleuth is theatrical. It is. Just, oh, God. Yes. Yeah. I love it a lot. But that movie, just giving that the directing award, it wouldn't make sense. So the other four of these films, to me, are very well directed. So I, 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 I love this category. And then there's Best Picture, which is pretty similar. You have, alongside The Emigrants, Cabaret, Deliverance, Sounder, and the winner was, of course, The Godfather. So would you give The Emigrants the win here? I actually don't know your answer to this. So I went back and forth on this, and again, it's one of those ones where changes based upon when you ask me. And at the moment, I'm just going to say The Godfather. I think for sheer influence, you can't beat it. And even though I might personally have more affection for the immigrants, I really can't deny the power of The Godfather as a piece of mainstream filmmaking that has connected with so many people. And I'm not one of those people who make statements like, oh, before The Godfather came along, there was no moral relativism in cinema and people were only willing to accept heroes who had no flaws. Because I think, okay, calm down. Look at screwball comedies from the 30s and 40s a lot of the heroines in that film are sort of evil if you look at them from a certain perspective and people were very happy to watch and enjoy those films. So I think people slightly overstate the influence that The Godfather had, at least in that regard. But I do think it's just a fantastic piece of filmmaking and I like the fact that it did win. Yes, yeah. I can't take away anything from The Godfather's win. It's The Godfather. Just hearing that title just strikes a chord. But I know you really don't agree with this, but Cabaret is my choice. I, it, it just, it's a movie that like I've loved for a very long time. It means a lot to me. It is the one I find the most rewatchable of this group. It's the one I connect to the most. I love the songs. I love the dancing. It is electric. I think it is one of my favorites of the decade. It's one of my favorite musicals. So I, I would give Cabaret the win, but this is an incredible category. I think all of these films are really good in their own way. And The Emigrants would have been a very inspired decision. It would have been a very deserving winner. So I, I would say that that, I mean, I can't say, I feel like in, in some way, none of these movies I would consider undeserving 
of winning Best Picture, but Cabaret is my favorite. Hmm. Now, even as somebody who is not a fan of Cabaret, I would say I am somewhat glad that it didn't win, only because, not even because I dislike it as a film, but I feel like if it had won, you would have a bunch of film bros going, oh, the worst movie to win of all time. Uh, yeah. Godfather. Oh my God, it's so awful. And you would just have all of these film bros dunking on people who like Cabaret on film Twitter and there would be all out warfare between actress Twitter and film bro Twitter. <laughs> and so I'm sort of glad that we don't have to deal with that discourse and people who like Cabaret can just like Cabaret without having to deal with the weight of some people accusing them of disliking The Godfather because they also happen to like Cabaret. I feel like because it didn't win, it doesn't have to deal with that burden of being the film that beat The Godfather. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. That happens to so many great films that don't win best that win Best Picture over a movie that has become more popular over the years or a movie that has has a higher rating. So I, I was gonna say like I I if Cavalry had won, like everyone like would call it one of the most undeserving winners. So in a way, like, I am glad that it lost. And also like the second one, I, I, I agree with that choice and that it was the best of, of that also very strong group of nominees. So I, I do think that Cabaret is my favorite, but at the same time, I am glad that it, it won everything it did and that does not include Best Picture. So I'm, I'm happy with these categories for the most part at, at this award ceremony. Hmm. I would say it's an odd year though, because you do have two big films sort of juking it out for most of the top prizes. And then it does feel like the other nominees were just lucky to be there. I think in Best Actress, there was no question that Liza was going to take the award home. And with most of the other categories, it was just, will it be The Godfather or will it be Cabaret? There wasn't any question of whether Lady Sings the Blues was going to pick up a bunch of major awards. Yeah, it was very much a La La Land Moonlight situation. Yes. It, it, I mean, it's kind of the exact same because La La Land won actress and director, but didn't win picture and it didn't win screenplay. And I, I've read a lot of articles about this and most people seem to be predicting Cabaret to win best picture. I, I could be wrong there. This is just could just be from what I've read. And obviously like the Godfather was more of a threat than Moonlight seemed to be, but it, it does seem like a very similar dynamic between the popular musical and the more because uh, you really can't compare The Godfather to Moonlight, can you? <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying, but I, it just seems like a similar dynamic. And again, sorry, I don't want to be one of those people who goes, oh, The Godfather, it was so independent and different and Cabaret was this really mainstream, stuffy film. I think there are ways in which Cabaret definitely altered the story found in the novella that it was based on to perhaps make it more 
accessible to mainstream audiences, but I definitely think that it is darker than, say, Fiddler on the Roof, which came out the previous year and was, I think, the highest grossing film of 1971. As a lot of people have pointed out, Cabaret is a bit darker than some other musicals from that period. But then at the same time, I do get the argument that the Academy, by continuing to reward all of these musicals, was sort of stuck in the past where they were just denying the fact that the musical was dying out as a top moneymaker for Hollywood. And they were going, no, we need to give the award to Oliver. And I like Oliver, but it does seem like a sign of their failure to change with the times that they went with Oliver instead of one of the more innovative, hip, trendy films that came out that year. Here's the thing. I, I think that Cabaret is actually a turn from all of those musicals because if you it, I, like there was this whole musical crisis in 1969 where Goodbye Mr. Chips and um, Hello Dolly just weren't as successful mm -hmm. they had some awards nominations but they really just didn't achieve the success of something like Oliver Funny Girl or The Sound of Music and Cabaret was in a way a comeback for that but it isn't your traditional MGM musical it is, as you said, a lot darker. The way the songs are performed, it's not like characters burst out into random song. They are all performances in a cabaret. So it really was a turn from these traditional musicals, but The Godfather winning over it does symbolize a turn in the Academy's directions. Mm, yes. And I think now you have a lot of gangster pictures, even if they are super violent and the main character is an anti-hero, that's very much seen as an establishment type movie. And you have the elderly Robert De Niro crowd in the Academy being willing to vote for something like that. So it is funny to see how times have changed. Yeah, definitely. Uh, best actress. Let's, let's, let's get into it because I think this is a really interesting race. I mm. think... This is one of my favorite best actress lineups for the most part. So Ooh, yeah, okay. yeah. Alongside Lee Volman, you have, I mean, of course your winner was Liza. You have Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues, Maggie Smith for Travels with My Aunt and Cicely Tyson for Sounder. I know your answer to this, but would you give Lee Volman the win? Yes, I would very easily. I think she's way ahead of the rest of the pack. Yeah, I mean, we, we can talk about Maggie Smith in a second. Oh. oh. Because I know, I know you don't love Cabaret or Liza's performance, but I feel like you can at least, you know, acknowledge why a lot of people really like it and connect with it and have like, a connection to her in it. Mm. I think I'd be more on board with it if Liza Minnelli's career had sort of panned out in the way it was meant to where it really feels like they gave her this award with the expectation that she was going to have a film career that was as successful as her mother's had been and then after this it was just flop after flop after flop and she couldn't make a hit to save her life and a lot of those movies are sort of bad and I don't think she's very good in them so I 
in that regard i kind of struggle to see why she's held up as this legend and icon and maybe that doesn't come from her film work and it's more to do with her work as an on-stage entertainer and as a singer so perhaps i just don't appreciate that facet of her career but i kind of feel like her movie career ground to a halt after cabaret which was this big moment for her and maybe i could support the win more if her future career had showed more promise rather than sort of being a nosedive of sorts and what i mean is like you understand why people like this performance specifically not really her in general i mean like this role because sally bowles is like iconic yes I somewhat get it. I'm not into it myself, but yes, I can appreciate the fact that a lot of people really love her song and dance numbers and her ostentatious style of acting. Yeah. But moving on to the other nominees, Liv is easily my runner-up. And, you know, as I said, she's just heartbreaking. She is so natural. She is amazing. She's brilliant. Following her, I have Diana Ross who I know didn't do the Billie Holiday voice. She sort of did her own thing, but she was very, very good. I have to say her levels of emotion and the way she balanced the way, the, the way she balanced Billie Holiday's voice and her mannerisms and giving this very big, powerful performance of someone who wasn't known as a movie star at all, I find it very impressive. I, I really like Diana Ross's performance. I feel like she was the runner-up. That would make the most sense to me. Even though The Emigrants was a Best Picture nominee and so was Sounder, I feel like Lady Sings the Blues was a bigger performance in some way mm-hmm. and, and gave Diana Ross more of a dynamic with regards to her career. So I, I feel like she was the runner-up. She probably was. I definitely think she was the biggest star in America of all of the rest of the nominees. And of course, that was primarily because of her massively successful career as a singer. And she was definitely better known as a singer than as an actress. But I think that fame really crossed over and it was one of those roles where she transformed into another famous person. And we know the Academy loves that. I have to say that I'm not as into the performance as I wanted to be. It does feel like a very generic biopic at a lot of points. And I think its structure really doesn't benefit her performance. I don't think you get much of a build up to a lot of the scenes in which she's going crazy and we're meant to believe that she's high on drugs and she's out of it. And so I think she ends up looking like a hysterical movie star who's really trying to pretend to be someone going through a drug addiction rather than allowing us to see glimpses of what drives Billie Holiday to act this way. So I think a movie with a better script would have made Diana Ross's performance more coherent. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's way too long. I don't think it's well balanced I don't think it's well paced but she did give it her all and I do really respect the decisions she made 
and the transformation on display, even if it is a little bit falling into the generic biopic phase. I do, I do like her a lot. And then Cicely Tyson, she is definitely supporting. I think that she would have won if she went into the supporting category, which is kind of a shame that she didn't because that would have been a great moment. She's wonderful. I, I love how subtle she is. I love how like expressive she is at the same time while being quiet. She really represents this motherly figure with all of these interesting, tr like interesting like character traits. I think she utilizes her screen time very effectively, but it isn't enough to give a win in the best actress category. It would just make more sense to me if they put her in supporting. Yes, I think it's very difficult to judge her performance when she is up against all of these actresses who really have entire movies to show off their skill and to tug on your heartstrings. And she has such a limited amount of time to do anything that she can't help but look like the weak link in some regards. And I think if you were comparing her to Geraldine Page in Pete and Tilly, who has a similar amount of screen time, it would be much easier to contrast and compare. And so I think I really can't take her seriously in the best actress category, just because, especially compared to somebody like Liev Ullman, there's just so much less for Cicely Tyson to do. Mm -hmm. Because I, I think you would agree, like she would have won if she went into supporting if she I, I want to believe that but then when we discussed butterflies are free <laughs> Eileen Heckart did seem to be a really popular figure in Hollywood she had worked for a long long time she knew a lot of people and that was a role she had played on stage again to great acclaim and so I do worry that she would have beaten Cicely Tyson out even if Tyson had been nominated in the supporting category yeah, it's definitely a fear of mine that I think about. But at the same time, Sounder was so much more successful than anyone had imagined. It, it was a really big hit, considering how small it seemed to be. And Cecily is, is like, oh, she got really amazing reviews. She won a lot of critics' awards. So I, I, I do see where, where you're coming from with that. And I do worry about that. But I just feel like she would have won. Mm. No, I, I want to believe that something like that would have happened, but then the the cynical, untrusting part of my brain is telling me that the Academy, and they often do this, they go, hmm, let's nominate a film, let's give a bunch of nominations to a movie that features minorities, that features a lot of representation of groups that we don't usually see on screen. And so we'll give it those nominations, but at heart, we just want to give the Christian Bales of, a world, of the world another award for losing a bunch of weight. And oh. let's just ignore people who are racial minorities or who aren't straight. And I do worry that that is what happened with Sounder, where they went, great, we've taken care of it. We gave a bunch of people nominations. <laughs> we have no obligation to give any of them wins and we're just going to ignore them now that we're into the voting period it's honestly upsetting because i know that 
and there are a lot of aspects of that film that I find to be all right. I don't think it's a very striking movie. I, I think it is a bit on the nose in a lot of regards, but just the fact that they denied it so quickly is a little upsetting and just goes to show that they aren't a progressive group of people. The people who vote no. for these aren't. So maybe you're right in that she would have lost supporting, but at, at the same time, it just was a much, it was a very popular film and mm. she was very revered with critics. So I, I feel like she would have gotten it. No, I definitely want to believe that she would have had a chance and maybe she would have, perhaps they could have advertised her in a way that really allowed her to pull ahead. But just kind of knowing the way that the Academy works, having things like connections really seems to help. And somebody like Eileen Heckart, who had been working for decades, I just worry that she had too many friends to lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But just for now, I want to believe that <laughs> Cicely Tyson would have won. So I'm going to move her into the yeah. supporting category. <laughs> but do you want to dig into Maggie Smith? <laughs> Oh, okay. Yes. Let's do this. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I'm not done yet. I, I still have a, a lot more to go. I, I'm, I'm almost there. I, out of all the Best Actress nominees I've seen, I think this is my least favorite. Because, it, yeah, and I know that's a big statement. But, you know, we, we've talked about, like, I we both just love her so much in the prime of Mistine Brody. We both yes. agree that that's one of the best performances ever. And then she <laughs> three years later comes out with this. I I don't understand. I I just oh, it's awful. I I really need to just process my words and and get my thoughts straight about this because it really is a horrendous performance. Oh, it is. Uh, I think the one solace that you can take from this the one comfort that you can take away from it is reading about the production she was asked to fill in at the last moment this role was written for another actress with very distinctive mannerisms and a very distinctive screen persona and that actress was Catherine Hepburn and so once you read about all of that and you realize that Maggie Smith was coming into this role with very little time to prepare and she was essentially being asked to impersonate another actress who was very different to her in terms of her comedic sensibility. I suppose it makes sense that the performance is this bad. If you read, no, Maggie Smith was signed on from the very beginning of the production and she spent five months preparing for this role and she and George Cukor had extensive discussions about her approach to the part and she felt like she was really prepared for this and super invested in the role, then I would be way more concerned because I would think, wait a minute, Maggie Smith went all in on this and this was the approach that she chose to take. At least you can think about the fact that this was her giving a relatively low effort performance or just a performance that wasn't entirely uh, finely tuned by the time that she came around to actually appearing on screen and delivering lines that had been written for another actress. Yeah, and, and Catherine Hepburn rewrote parts of that script, too. 
So it really was intended for Katherine Hepburn. So I do have sympathy and I do understand that Maggie Smith probably doesn't like this, this nomination and this performance, but her nomination doesn't make any sense because if audiences, did audiences like know that this was intended for Katherine Hepburn? Because if they did and, and they still were able to nominate her, it just, it's so odd to me because it's genuinely an undeniably like out of place performance. It just feels wrong. It doesn't even seem like it's Maggie Smith. It seems like a random British actress that they pulled off the street. And in some ways I feel bad, but she's just so awful in it to the point where I can't. Yeah, it feels like a weird retread of Auntie Mame too, mm. where I think this character is meant to have the same charm where, oh, isn't she outrageous and ridiculous? And she just says the funniest things. And no. Maggie Smith does not have the same quality as a Rosalind Russell, who was always a fairly hammy, over-the-top actress where you relish all of those crazy facial expressions. And with Maggie Smith, I don't need that from her. And this is just a car crash of a performance. It's horrifying. And you want to look away. You desperately want it to end. <laughs> yeah, I think that Maggie Smith, just her voice is like snobbishly high-peached. She has this yeah. specific tone that is, one, not Catherine Hepburn. She will never be Catherine Hepburn. Just absolutely not. But two, she, like as you said, like the movie thinks it is hilarious. It thinks it is just making its audience enjoy themselves so much because Maggie Smith's comedic timing is just brilliant. But it's really not. It's the exact opposite. So the jokes just become worse and worse. I, I don't think I even smiled once while watching this film. I was just dead because it felt so wrong. Everything about it was just not in place. It just didn't even feel like a real movie at times. Mm. And to be honest, even with Catherine Hepburn involved playing this role that was seemingly written for her and that she rewrote parts of the script, I can't imagine the film being that much fun. Even then, yes, it would have been less of a train wreck, but even then it does feel like a bit of a vanity project. And look, I do love Catherine Hepburn in a lot of films I think when given the right material she's great but there are also times where she was allowed to indulge a little bit too much and perhaps should have reined herself in or should have had a director who was willing to tell her mm, tone it down a bit and I do worry that we would have gotten a slightly better version of this film that was still fairly ghastly if everything had gone ahead as planned. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, and, and you also realize that, you know, Catherine Hepburn definitely would have gotten a nomination if she made the project. <sighs> so it just goes to show that, like, one, this genuinely isn't a good role. It's not a good story. And two, just regardless, as long as a famous actress plays a loud part the academy would have nominated it so it is a little ridiculous 
she is just so easily the worst <laughs> nominee in this group. It's it's awful. Yes. Oh god. Yeah. But so you you as a whole just tying back to the immigrants. I literally forgot that that's what this podcast episode was about. <laughs> um so you'd give it the win and everything except for adapted screenplay. Well, no, I would give best picture to The Godfather, but Oh yeah. So you'd give it director and actress. It's most of the awards that it was nominated for, yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm on the fence with a lot of categories. Like, I don't think I would give it any awards, but I hate saying that because if this were the year before, I would give it a lot of awards. Like, The Last Picture Show is my favorite film of 1971, but I would still give, like, The Emigrants, like, awards if it, if it were nominated the year before. So it, it is a struggle for me to sort of compromise because I love Cabaret and the Godfather so much. But I am very glad that they recognize the immigrants. I'm glad that they recognize it because I, I know about it now. So yeah, it, it's an amazing film. I think it would have been very deserving if it had a sweep, obviously never going to happen, but it would have been cool. It would have been cool. So do you have any final things you have to add? I would say that 1972 was just a very weird year, and I think we've talked through that thoroughly. But you look back and you think, oh, wow, it was the year of the Godfather and the immigrants, and surely this was one of those amazing years. And then I think you look through a lot of the categories, and some of them are a bit ropey. We brought up supporting actress, and you look at that category, and it is weird. You do yeah. have your Susan Tyrells and Fat Cities, but you also have Eileen Heckart and Butterflies Are Free, a performance that has not aged particularly well. Mm, and Shelley Winter. <laughs> oh, yes, and the Poseidon Adventure. Yeah. Uh, and I know you love Geraldine and you like give her the win for that, but really? <laughs> for that? <laughs> so, really awful movie has some of the most abrupt tonal shifts that I have ever encountered <laughs> in a film. And yet I think Geraldine is sort of fun in it. And I just give her credit for taking nothing and making something out of it. And I think there are other actresses in that category who had more to work with. But in terms of just my admiration for the performances, I have to admire what Geraldine did because she's working with this crap screenplay. Her character is arguably depicted in a sexist light and I think she still makes it funny. Fair. I I would give the win to Tyrell, but like, this is a not a great category. Not really. <laughs> and and, and the, the supporting actor category makes sense to me though. I mean, aside yeah. from like category fraud, I, I think it's like, a pretty clear lineup mm. yes i'm not a category fraud person me neither i look at the el pacino nomination <laughs> and i have to laugh because he's he... more of a lead than marlon brando yes <laughs> and, and the best actor lineup is really like again clear except for peter o'toole which is such oh. an odd nomination I, yeah. I, I, I'm gonna in the future the lone acting nominees I'm doing this movie on that podcast 
because I just oh, like really? don't yeah I just wow. don't hear about it at all ever like oh, no God. one talks about okay. it you've you signed up for some torture <laughs> I've seen it already it is oh yeah it's a lot I mean I I, I gave it a fairly high rating on Letterboxd because really? I, oh. I, I respect it in a lot of ways that there are a lot of very interesting moments when it, but we'll hear that on that episode that that's a whole other situation but very weird year at the Oscars. I, I'm with you. I think the the acting the the acting winners make a lot of sense though. Just like in general, just looking through them, they're fairly obvious. Oh yes, v- very much so. I think especially the Liza Minnelli win. Yeah, she was just a juggernaut at the time. There was she no won person. by so many votes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, Emigrants is a great movie. I. In, I mean, most of the people listening to this have probably seen it, but if you haven't, I, I really encourage you to check it out. It is long, but it is a very rewarding film. It is a nice one to check off the list. It has a lot of admirable qualities, so seek it out if you can. Uh, Zita, where can people find you? So I am on Twitter at Zita underscore short, and I also host the 300 Passions podcast, which Sam has already been on and definitely will be on in the future early next month we're doing a double feature of sam episodes with well well, by the time this episode comes out those will already be out (laughs) yes and we're doing a double feature of butterflies are free and a patch of blues so we're talking about two different supporting actress winners and it was very fun so you can find that at most podcast hosting platforms Yes, perfect. I am on Twitter at Sam the Parasite, Letterboxd, Sam Meltzer. Please review and rate this podcast on whatever podcast service you use. Thank you all for listening. New episodes every Friday. Bye.